0: Our new worship space is going to be Goodwin-Frasier Elementary School, um, which is not too far from here. I think it's going to be great. It's going to fit us really well, and we're really excited about being there. So February the 3rd is our first Sunday at Goodwin-Frasier. sorry for, like, taking my coat on and off there back there. This is what happens in the holidays when the regular music people are out of town, and uh, so we're swapping microphones and taking on and off jackets, and that's what you get during the holidays. So <laughs> uh, Speaking of, if you're here... You know, visiting family, if it's your first time, or if you're just kind of here in New Broncos for a little while, we're really happy that you're here. Thanks for being with us. We are excited to worship with you. You've caught us at a good time, too, because we're starting a new series. We are starting a series on the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark, and we'll be in Mark between now and Easter. It's actually uh, our hope that every year around this time we'll, we'll be in a gospel account, and between Christmas and Easter every year that we'll be looking at a different gospel. Last year we looked at Matthew. This year we're going to look at the Gospel of Mark, and Mark is such a fascinating um, gospel account. If you if you are new to even knowing who Jesus is, or if you're exploring who Jesus is, Mark is a great place to start because it just comes right out of the gate saying, "This is who Jesus is. He is the Messiah." The Son of God, the King who's come to rule the world. And Mark just kind of says, what are you going to do with him? He starts out really proclaiming who Jesus is. Mark was probably a good friend, maybe even a disciple of the Apostle Peter. So he wrote down a lot of things, at least this is what scholars believe, from Peter's perspective. And so you're getting a lot of eyewitness accounts from Peter that are given to Mark. The book of Mark reads really fast. We get a whole lot about what Jesus does, not as much about what Jesus says and teaches, but we get the biggest emphasis on who Jesus is and what he does. These are good things for us to chew on over the next few months, to really wrestle with this question, who is Jesus and what do I do with him? Who is Jesus and what is he calling me to do? So if you will open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 1, and listen as I read the first 11 verses for us of Mark chapter 1. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face. He will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make his paths straight. The strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending upon him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Our oh Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for um, for John, who came and said things that were oftentimes hard for the people around him to hear. Who prepared the way, set the stage, kind of flashed that bright marquee to say the King is coming. He's here. Come and see. Lord, will you show us today, will you let us come and see who you are, that we might be changed by your word, that we might be fed by your spirit, Lord, that we might come and see your love for us more deeply and that we might, in turn, love you more fully. We pray that you would speak to us through your word this morning, and we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I don't know if you've ever, um, if you've ever had the silent treatment given to you or if you've given the silent treatment probably both you know the silent treatment is kind of it's really like step five you know in these steps of anger you know you first have uh just some some bitter words and maybe some cutting kind of words and some sarcasm then it turns just into yelling but really the high point of anger is total removal isn't it it's the silent treatment. It's, I'm not even going to dignify your response with any kind of other response. I, 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 don't, even, I don't even see that you exist, right? In, in many ways, uh, the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is apathy. It's just complete removal. There's a song I love by David Ramirez. Uh, it's called, People Call Who They Want to Talk To. And this is what he's lamenting. Listen, if you would just call me and yell at me and tell me how angry you are, that's fine. At least I know you want to talk to me. But when you don't call at all, when it's just completely absent, when there's silence, that's when the pain is felt the most. Well, when we open up the pages of the New Testament, we actually have been in a time of silence where God's people probably thought God was giving them the silent treatment. Uh, it's just one page in your Bible, but between Old Testament and New Testament is about 400 years. That's a long time. Okay, 400 years ago was 1618. There was no United States of America at that time. Uh, 400 years is a long time, and as far as we know, there was no word from God through a prophet. There was nothing coming from God that said You are my people and this is what I want you to do Or this is what the plans are Or this is what's coming next And they were in a time really Where they were wondering Well maybe God's just kind of left the building Maybe he's just kind of checked out Maybe it's something that we've done And he's decided to give us the silent treatment Because he's angry at us And he's really just decided to let us drift away You know, you've probably felt that way If you're like me You've probably felt that way in your life at times especially if there are big questions that are kind of circling around in your head and circling around in your life. You know, things like, where are we going to be a year from now? Am I going to have the same job that I have next year? Am I going to live in the same place? Is my life going to be radically different a year from now? Or maybe you're thinking, uh, how do I continue living with a person that is so difficult for me to be around? Or maybe you're coming off of, what do I do with the disappointments of Christmas that seem like last year's disappointments and the disappointments the year before that and the year before that? Or, how do I deal with being the disappointment? (laughs) Because I I just feel like I'm the guy that just brings the disappointment. What do I do with that? And if you're struggling with those big questions, if those are kind of the big things going on in your head, well, there's a good chance you're you're also feeling like there's a distance between you and the Lord. Like there's some reason he's not answering those pleas. There's some reason he's not giving you those really clear answers. And there's just kind of this silence and you feel like you're getting the silent treatment from God. Well, this is the good news, of course, is that when we open up Mark chapter 1, what we see is that God breaks into that silence and he breaks in in a pretty amazing way. He says, okay, I'm not only coming to speak and to give you this little bit of news, he says, I'm coming to actually give you the biggest bit of news you've ever heard. I'm coming to tell you something that is going to revolutionize the way that you think and live. I'm coming to tell you that the world is about to change. That's what we see at the very beginning of Mark chapter 1. Mark says, this is the gospel of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. The gospel meaning the proclamation, the joyful news that God has broken into history and done something to totally change it. That God has actually redirected history in coming as Christ. That He has brought the King to bear in the world. And He is saying, I've got good news, listen. Listen up. So what does it mean for us to continually tune our ears to the Lord and His voice? That's really what we're going to talk about this morning. What does it mean to hear from God? To listen to what He has to say to us because He is speaking to us and He continues to do so through His Word. What does it look like for us to listen we're going to break it down in three categories, and here they are. Is that, uh, is that hearing from God, first of all, means that we've got to hear the stuff that we don't like to hear. Okay? That we don't want to hear. Secondly, we're actually hearing the stuff that we do want to hear, and you'll, I'll explain that in a second. And then, thirdly, that we need to hear the things that are true for us to hear. The right things for us to hear. So let's look at those three things. We'll start with this first one. It is we need to hear from God even if it's the times that we don't want to hear it. Think about John the Baptist, or think about it actually maybe in more of a contemporary setting. You've probably either seen physically, or you've at least just kind of experienced the caricature of the preacher who's out kind of in the, either in the wild or on the street corner, and he's saying, repent, the end is near. Now what do we typically do with those kind of people? Two things, either we kind of sneer at them, or we just ignore them. We just kind of cast them to the side, and we say, not really ready to hear that, and you're kind of weird, and you dress funny, and I don't really want to listen to you because I'm actually on my way into this store. So we just kind of cast them aside. I mean, Mark's time was not that different from ours You've got this guy wearing camel hair, and it's not, it's not a camel hair jacket. He didn't get it in Brooks Brothers. It's like a skin and a leather belt, and he's eating bugs and honey. Like, he's kind of a weirdo out in the wilderness, and he's preaching these words that say, repent. Repent, and he's preaching the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness sounds like a great word. Sins, hmm, maybe not so much. It's not so exciting to hear when somebody says, I've got great news, you need to change. Because it interrupts the status quo in our life, doesn't it? God's Word always does that. God's Word always comes in and interrupts our status quo. And we like status quo. We like the way that things are. We like the way that things just kind of keep going. This happens a lot in marriage. Where a marriage can kind of grow and over the course of the years, uh, two people just begin to kind of grow apart little by little. And underneath the surface, there's more conflict, but it doesn't really bubble up over the surface. The status quo just kind of keeps it together. Right? You're worried about, when do I pick up the son from basketball practice? When do I pick up my daughter from the dance recital? When are we going on this vacation? How are we going to get the groceries together? It's all about logistics, And there's very thin ice in the relationship. But, you know, if you just go really fast over that thin ice, maybe it won't break and you might not fall in. So everything just kind of gets held together by the status quo. But this is why so many marriages end in divorce as soon as kids leave home. Because there's nobody to pick up from basketball practice anymore. There's nobody to take to the dance recital anymore. And you slow down and that ice begins to crack and you see that the real problems are underneath the surface there. God's word does the same thing to us. It stops us in our tracks. It interrupts the status quo. It stops us from what we were, we are doing. Uh, a good counselor will tell you that uh, a known dysfunction is easier than an unknown function you hear that? A known dysfunction is easier to handle than a known function. Meaning, I could think, you know what? Yeah, I know deep down that pouring three drinks every night so that I can unwind is probably not healthy. There's something dysfunctional going on, but it's the pattern I've got set, and boy, it sure is hard to change it. This gets played out in in whole family systems, too. When she doesn't ever do the things that's requested of her, so she picks up all of the slack and does them for her, and he makes sure everything is swept under the rug and everybody's happy together. And it all just kind of works. And everyone knows it's totally messed up, and everyone knows it's dysfunctional, and everyone knows it's not healthy, but it's known. And the unknown function is hard. It breaks all that apart, and it makes everything really sticky and really, really difficult. When we lived in Baton Rouge, we, uh, we remodeled our, our master bathroom on accident kind of because um, I started taking apart tiles and then I just kind of went crazy to pulling tiles off the wall so as we were pulling all the things off the wall one of the things we took out was the old bathtub it was this old cast iron bathtub that we literally had to sledgehammer out and break into pieces and throw out out of the window and once we did all you're left with because we lived in a house built on pier and beam so there was a crawl space underneath the house so all you're left with is kind of the rotten old subfloor which we took that out and once that's all pulled up you can actually see under the house. You kind of see all the workings of, of the house. And you see the piers and you see the beams and you see the floor joists and you see the things that are holding the house up. Well, what I could see then after I took everything apart was the house was built in the 30s, but probably sometime 20 or 30 years after that, somebody had remodeled this bathroom. And they had decided, we want to put the plumbing right here. And so they started running running plumbing lines, and there was this big PVC pipe that came down. But where they wanted to put the drain pipe, there just so happened to be a floor joist in the way. So instead of working the plumbing around the floor joist or figuring out a different solution, they just cut the floor joist. They just cut a big old hole out of it. So instead of being like 12 inches, there was like this much wood left. They just cut a big old hole out of that. I had two distinct thoughts when I saw that, okay? The first thought was, what a bunch of idiots. Who does this? The second thought was, eh, you'll probably be all right. (laughs) Status quo, baby. Just pretend like you didn't see it, cover it up, and let's just keep moving forward, okay? Nobody saw anything, everything's fine. The known dysfunction is easier than the unknown function. Friends, when God's word breaks into our lives, when we hear that call, when we hear words like repentance and faith and things that are difficult, when God's word comes in and he says, you need to listen actually to what I'm saying, that can be really hard because it can disrupt the status quo. It can stop us in our tracks. And whether that's relationally or your own particular patterns of life and sin, it can be like that thin ice that you're standing on. Once you stop, it starts to crack. And it gets really scary. Well, that's the first thing we need to know, is if we're going to listen to God, we have to listen to Him with the things that are hard for us to hear. We have to hear the things that are hard for us to hear. When He calls us to repent, to change, to put aside the things that we rely on that are not Jesus, to make Jesus the center of our life and nothing else, that can sometimes be a really difficult thing to hear. Here's the second thing, and it's going to sound like I'm saying just the opposite, is that hearing from God also includes hearing the things that are easy for us to hear. Here's what I mean by that. Is that as we continue to listen to the Lord, it actually gets easier. As we continue to tune our ears to hear what God has to say to us, then hearing from Him actually gets easier and easier. My brother-in-law who's in town asked me the other night, Do you guys do New Year's resolutions? Do 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 New Year's resolutions? And, um, I mean, even literally just the mention of that word, like, raises anxiety in me. You know, because I think, uh, it's like something I've got to do. And I decided, yes, I'm going to make some New Year's resolutions this year. And I'm going to gain a little bit of weight. Probably some belly fat. I feel like that's the first resolution that I'm going to make. The second goal, probably, that I'll watch more Netflix. Um, maybe get a little grumpier and uh, stop picking up after myself. Because I feel like these are the things that I can really accomplish. <laughs> Those are goals that I can set for myself that I know are achievable. Like, I can knock that out of the park. It, it's funny, but it's actually kind of true, right? The old axiom that... Go ahead and take the baby steps and set the small goals that you know are achievable rather than shooting for the stars and always missing. I heard somebody say the other day, like, listen, if you wanted to become a more productive person in your life, don't set the goal to be a more productive person. Set the goal to get up and make your bed. And then do that the next day. And you'll see that actually taking these little baby steps will get you to being a more productive person in your life. Well, it works the same for us spiritually. It works the same for us when we say, you know what I'd like to do more of is to be engaged in God's word. I'd like to hear from God more. I'd like to spend more time with him. Well, guess what? It's the baby steps that actually end up getting us there. It's the building of that spiritual muscle memory that ends up making it easier for us to hear from God. I, there's this fascinating show that I think is still on television. It's maybe called Sports Science. It's all about kind of the science of sports and how particular things work in sports. And they'll ask these big questions and then test it. So, for instance, one of them was, um, you know, what's a harder hit? Is it from a rugby player or a football player? Is it, is it harder to get hit by a rugby player when you're not wearing any pads? Or is it harder to get hit by a football player when he's wearing pads? Which... It's a football player, by the way. Like ten times harder. But the one that was the most fascinating to me was they said, I wonder who is more accurate, an NFL archer or an NFL quarterback? Who's more accurate? An NFL I mean a, an Olympic archer is what I meant to say. An Olympic archer or an NFL quarterback. And so they decided to test it. And they set up an archery range, which is twenty yards, I think, and they had an Olympic archer come out there and shoot ten arrows into this uh, into this archery target. And out of ten arrows, he hit six bullseyes. Which I thought was pretty darn good. Six bullseyes, like the little bitty circle right in the middle of that target. And then they had Drew Brees quarterback of the New Orleans Saints, come out and throw 10 footballs at that same target. He hit 10 bullseyes. He threw a football and hit a circle this big, 20 yards away, 10 times in a row. And the the, the people that were doing the test were just amazed. They said, how in the world are you this accurate? How can you do that? And his answer was so good. He just said, I've literally dropped back and taken those steps and moved my arm in this way and released the ball exactly like this hundreds of thousands of times. I've done it over and over and over and over and it's just what my body knows how to do now. There's muscle memory. I've done it so many times that it's the way that I know how to function. Listen to what the author and theologian N.T. Wright says about this. He says It's what happens when someone has made a thousand small choices, requiring effort and concentration to do something which is good and right, but which doesn't come naturally. And then on the thousand and first time, when it really matters, they find that they do what's required automatically. It's what happens when wise and courageous choices have become second nature. This... That works spiritually. When we continue to put one little baby step in front of the other, our muscles, our spiritual muscles get trained. There begins to become a memory where we start to do things more automatically. But here's what even makes it better, I think. Is that this idea of uh, we've got to hear what we want to hear, it's not just our activity that kind of makes us do it, it actually comes from our heart. Uh, you'll see maybe something that caught your attention in Mark here. What, Mark's, I mean, what John says is, I'm baptizing you with water, Jesus is coming, He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That may have just kind of stuck out as a big question to you. What in the world is He talking about? What does baptism of the Holy Spirit mean? Well, we're not going to dig real deep into it, but let me just give you the, the, the quick surface explanation. Is that when you become a Christian... When you realize that you've been relying on your own self-sufficiency, when you realize that you've been relying on your own selfishness, on your own way of finding some sort of stability, of finding some sort of inner peace, of finding some sort of way to be united with God, you realize that that's been all coming from you. And you turn actually from those things and turn to Jesus and realize that He has done what you cannot that He has lived the life that you cannot live and then died a sacrificial death for you. When you put your trust then in that death on your behalf, that's what becoming a Christian means. And what the Bible says is that when that happens, we are immersed into God. That we are united with Christ. It's crazy even to think about. That we are united spiritually with God through Christ and by the work of the Holy Spirit. That we are baptized Into the Spirit, immersed into Him, soaked in the Spirit, that He is ours and we are His. And what the Bible says is true of you is that if you were a Christian, your heart, at its most, at its deepest, truest place, wants to follow God, it wants to hear from the Lord, it wants to serve Jesus as King. If you're a Christian, your heart has been changed. The Bible says that the Lord has actually taken out your heart of stone and He's given you a heart of flesh. And He's given you a heart that actually wants to be with Him, that desires Him. Now, the hard part for us now is that we still live before Jesus' second coming, and so we still are at war with ourselves. We're still at war with our flesh, with our our sinful nature that oftentimes wants wants to run 100%, 180 degrees away from God. But if you're true self, you do desire these things. And what we need to remember is that when we hear from the Lord, not only do we desire it, but we can embrace that desire such that we begin to train our flesh to come in accordance with it. That we train the activity of our lives to, to actually work in lockstep with the real desires of our hearts. That's the spiritual muscle memory that we're talking about. That's the baby steps that we're talking about. So I'm going to introduce this challenge to you one more time. We talked about this just a few weeks ago. Here's the challenge for us. Spend 15 minutes in God's Word and in prayer every day, even if it's just five days a week. Every weekday, 15 minutes in God's Word and in prayer. If you're married, it will be even better if you do it with your spouse. And begin to see how the Lord changes you. How He begins to work those spiritual muscles so that hearing from Him actually is a much easier process, even when hearing from Him is a difficult thing to hear. Alright, let's move to this third thing. And this is kind of where we'll close. Is that hearing from God... It doesn't just mean we, we hear what is hard for us to hear or also what has becomes easy for us to hear. But most importantly, hearing from God means that we need to hear what is true. We need to hear what is true about who God is and who we are. So oftentimes, particularly again, if you're in kind of that time in your life where you're we're asking those big questions, what's my life going to look like next year? Uh, wh- what's going to happen? We are oftentimes asking God for answers of what? But the answer that we really need to get is who? We're asking God to tell us what to do, but the answer that we oftentimes receive is God actually telling us who we are. Look again at these verses here in uh, verse 9 through 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open, and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. Now, again, you may be wondering why in the world was Jesus baptized? Like, it feels like Jesus should be the one baptizing, not the one who's getting baptized. In fact, John says that in another gospel. Jesus comes to be baptized, and John says, No, we've got this all messed around. You're the one who should be baptizing me. So why did Jesus get baptized? Well, the quick answer is that what the Bible says is who Jesus is is that he is our representative. He has actually come to earth to take our place. To become one of us so that he might take our full humanity and even our sin upon himself. At the end of the Gospel of Mark, you will see Jesus on a cross taking the sin of the world upon himself. But at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, you actually see a glimpse of that as well. When Jesus goes down into the waters of baptism and repentance, He is doing so as our representative. He is doing so on our behalf. Again, if you're a Christian, remember, you are united to Jesus by faith. And so it works the other way as well. Jesus not only is our representative, but we actually are found in Him. And so when we hear these words come from the Father to Jesus, guess what? We get to hear them about us as well. We get to hear the Father say to us, You are my beloved son, my beloved daughter. I love you. I'm pleased with you. You may not have ever heard that from your, from your earthly father. If that's the case, pay close attention to these words here. This is what your heavenly Father says to you. I love you. I'm pleased with you. I know you. You're mine. You're my child. Listen again to these words. This is N.T. Wright again. He says this. The whole Christian gospel could be summed up in this point. That when the living God looks at us, at every baptized and believing Christian, he says to us what he says to Jesus on that day. He sees us not as we are in ourselves, but as we are in Jesus Christ. It's been said that uh, no one speaks to you more than you speak to yourself. (laughs) Right, uh, We don't hear the words from anybody else nearly as often as we hear the little voice in our own head. And so it's good to ask us, what are we saying to ourselves? What are we listening to when we hear it the most? Are we listening to the voice that says, you know what, really you're a loser. And this whole idea even of trying to kind of do the spiritual muscle memory thing, you're going to fail. And so there's really no use trying. Are we listening to the voice that says, uh, you know what, really, really, if you want to find some real significance in life, I mean, yeah, Jesus is fine, but, like, go find it in something that's going to give you a lot of feedback from the people around you. That's where you need to hear it from. Are we listening to that voice? Are we listening to the voice of our Father who says, I love you. I'm pleased with you. Now go, as my loved and pleased child, go and make wise choices. Go and follow me. Go and listen to what I have to say and live the life that I've given you. What are we listening to? What are we? What picture are we looking at of ourselves? There's this incredible video that um, was floating around the internet for a little while. And you can still find it on YouTube if you type in, um, you are more beautiful than you think. If you type that phrase in, you'll find this video. And what it is, is really a social experiment. Where... Um, Whoever has put this together has gathered this group of women, and they gathered a group of women, and then they went and they found this forensic artist, a guy that works for the FBI drawing pictures of suspects, right? So people come and say, yeah, he had this kind of nose and this kind of hair, and they'll describe it, and that's the guy that draws up the picture that gets posted around so everybody tries to find the suspect, right? And what they did was they had each of these women come and sit down in an interview with this forensic artist, and the women would describe themselves. And, and they had set up a kind of a curtain so that the guy couldn't see them at all. He would just listen to them describe themselves. And he would ask them, you know, tell me about, tell me about your hair and, and your eyes. And tell me about your lips and kind of what, you know, what's your most prominent feature. And he would just listen to them as they described themselves. And he would draw that picture. And they kind of set that to the side. And along the way, what they also did was they paired these women up. And they just said, okay, we want you and you to spend some time together and get to know each other, just to become friends over the course of a week or so. And at the end of that week, what they did was they brought in each person again to talk to that forensic artist, except this time they would describe their friend. And he would say, all right, tell me about your friend, this new friend that you've met. And and what does she look like? and, And tell me about her eyes and her cheekbones and tell me about her lips and how she looks. And they would describe the picture of that person from their point of view. And at the end, then they hung up all the pictures side by side. And on this side would be, here's the description I gave of myself, and here's me as described by my new friend. And they would bring these women back in, and they would look at these pictures, and it was incredible, the difference. And they would look, and they'd say, you know, this person here on the left, um, she looks just kind of, she looks unhappy. She looks sad. She looks kind of closed off. She looks not very attractive. She's honestly not somebody I'd want to spend much time with. But this person on the right, she's pretty. She's open. She looks warm and loving. and Like, I'd want that person to be my friend. And, of course, the point of the whole thing was, we need to see ourselves the way that we are seen by God, not the way that we see ourselves when we continue to hear those those words in our own heads that are saying, you will never amount to anything, you're just a failure. You're always going to screw it up. Or, the only way that you'll find significance in life is to go and achieve something, to go do these really big things, and to to get some sort of power or control um, or acceptance from others. That's the way that you'll get actually real meaning in your life. And we, we feed ourselves that information over and over and over again. But what God's Word is calling us to is to actually look at the true picture the one that He paints for us, the one that says, You're my beloved child. I love you. I'm pleased with you. Now go. Go and engage in the world. Make wise choices. Follow me. Be free to go and live like a child who is loved by his father would live. To be able to listen to the hard things and know how to deal with them. To be able to have our status quo interrupted. To be able to even go about the difficult work of self-discipline, which is really hard for me. To be able to go about that work of kind of spiritual muscle memory. And to go and do so as those who are loved by our Father. Will you pray with me that the Lord would show us the right picture of who we are, even now. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what um, what a pleasant thing it is. To be able to stand before your word and to see the real picture of who you've said we are. Lord, even as we look in the mirror every day we see the things about ourselves that really are truly not very attractive. We see the ugliness of our sin. We see the difficulty of the way that we relate to you and to others. We see the ways that we so oftentimes try to get over that by our own activity. But Lord, you've called us to come and look at the mirror of your word. And to see that even in the midst of that, even even though all of that might be true, what you have said to us is you're my son, you're my daughter, I love you, I'm pleased with you. Come and be mine and hear these wonderful words. Lord, will you let us hear them more clearly?